Sark was a hero. Sark walked on water. Everyone listened to what he had to say. There was a respect for expertise at that time. It's slowly been eroded to the detriment of our society, really of the world. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill and Fred, thanks again for joining us. It's been a couple of weeks. I'd like to bring the audience up to speed and maybe I'll kick it off with you, Bill. So where we thought we would be going two weeks ago is I think where we've we've gone. The the case rates are down substantially. But even with those case rates being down, there's there's even less confidence in what the case rates that we're seeing because nobody's reporting. The only cases that are getting reported are people who are sick. So it's really throwing off all the data. Many people, they get bad cold symptoms and they don't even take a test or not even bad cold symptoms. They get mild cold symptoms, don't even bother taking a test. And the ones that do take home tests... That data is not going anywhere. So whatever we're seeing for case rates is, to some extent, um, public health pr- practitioner adjusted fictitious data. Um, now, I, that shouldn't scare people because we've really gotten to a phase in the in the uh, epidemic or the series of regionally linked epidemics that the the more useful data is the hospitalization and and unfortunately still death data, but. Even the hospitalization and death data has turned down pretty much uh, across the board in the country. So what we're seeing now is that people are just are pushing hard to do away with all kinds of restrictions. And just uh, Wednesday, um, Dr. Walensky from CDC said that CDC will very shortly be coming out with new recommendations on masking, and they're going to change it because of the the issues that I brought up with the uh, case rates. You can't use them to make any really careful decisions. You need to be looking at other data. And so that's what they're going to be coming out with. She also said that the new data will be much more tailored to specific situations and not to broad geographic areas, but hasn't really given any more hint as to what that will mean. So I think what we're going to see is recommendation to wear masks in places like hospitals and nursing homes. We don't know what they'll say about schools, um, but we know that most school systems are removing mask requirements. Um, And I think we're going to see just an extension of the removal of various requirements across the country over the coming two to four weeks. Yeah, I agree with Bill. Uh, We, uh, in our own, in Florida, our case rate has dropped dramatically and the hospitalizations have dropped by about 50%. So that's very encouraging. The death rate, daily death rate has not changed significantly, but that's expected. It it will lag about three to four weeks after uh, the decrease in cases. So that is encouraging uh, news. There are other parts of the country, for instance, Kentucky, is up at right now at 400 cases uh, in some counties, up to 400 cases per day uh, per 100,000. So it's not totally, uh, it's not totally quieted down. In some areas, it's still active. In other areas, it's uh, become quiescent. 
Yeah, it's it is interesting if you're looking at the state by state data because uh, Maine, for example, their data indicates that they've had a 350 percent increase in the number of cases um, over the past week. Well. I went to the state of Maine Department of Health and they said, uh, please don't look at that data because what happened was they had a number of their um, health data experts who are out with COVID and they're catching up from two weeks of data. So they've dumped, they've dumped basically two weeks of data, including the peak of COVID on top of their current data. So that's the only reason why theirs look so bad. Other than that, pretty much the rest of the country, except Kentucky, um, is on a fairly significant downward slope. So some of the headlines uh, in this recognize that this may be to drive traffic to various media websites, um, Twitter accounts, etc., have spoken about uh, the new wave of variants, uh, terms like we're going to have to learn to live with COVID, uh, what what to be worried about next, et cetera. Can you share with the audience just, you know, how you guys are thinking about this and what the data is actually showing? Well, I've been looking at the BA1, which is the original Omicron, versus the BA2, or the stealth Omicron, as they call it, um, very closely. And what's what is very frustrating is every day there's a study that says almost the opposite as the previous. Um, the most recent was there was an article in CNN uh, quoting a study that was done, I believe, in Europe. I don't, I'm not sure on that, um, where it said that uh, Oma, that BA2 is causing 30% more deaths. Um, and significantly more hospitalizations than BA1. But then a, a National Institute for Communicable, Communicable Disease study that was just put out yesterday said that uh, looking at South African and European data, that BA1 and BA2 have almost identical hospitalizations, and that when you look at seriously ill amongst those hospitalizations, BA2 is about 10% less on people that, by seriously ill, they typically mean require um, ICU hospitalization, about 10% less than that for BA1. Um, BA2 is, every across the board agrees, that it's somewhere around a third more likely to infect others but it's still susceptible to immunity from vaccination um, and previous illness to the similar degree. Now, that's not necessarily a high degree, but to a similar degree as BA1, um, and currently represents about 5 to 6% of cases in the United States. BA2 does, that is. Yeah, I, I agree with Bill's uh, assessment. As far as I know, there is no rigorous evidence proving that BA2 is more virulent. In other words, causes more severe disease. Uh, that's remotely possible. Uh, and I, I, I do agree that it's a little bit more contagious than the BA1. And that's why it is taking hold slowly. Uh, I and, and as far as cross immunity, it seems uh, reasonably uh, approximate the same. And therefore, if you are infected with BA1, you should not become infected with BA2. And therefore, it's very unlikely, in my estimation, that BA2 is going to take hold as the dominant organism, uh, a dominant variant in the near in the near future, or or ever for that matter. Which brings up the question of other 
uh, variants. And you know, again, you read the a lot of people writing stories looking for eyeballs are writing about how we're going to have it's just inevitable we're going to have another major variant. Well. I, again, as you all know, I'm not a virologist, but what I have read for, from some very competent virologists is a theory that because BA1 and now BA2 are both so infectious that it would be very difficult for any uh, COVID or SARS-CoV-2 virus to modify and become more infectious and at the same time more virulent. Therefore, BA1, BA2 would crowd out anything that is more virulent and maintain BA1, BA2 as the predominant uh, virus that's in circulation. So this, these theories say that we're probably you know, at the, the kind of the peak virus um, with BA1, BA2. Uh, Bill, I, I, I agree with that assessment. Um, I thought that Delta was going to be the most contagious, but... Uh, uh, clearly, Omicron beat out Delta dramatically, but it's hard to believe there haven't been any other viruses more infectious than this uh, than the Omicron. And I think the its ability to spread by aerosol is has been maximized. And in other words, it's highly unlikely that there could be a virus that would be more contagious in the future. And therefore, I I agree. I I believe we've reach the pinnacle, and this is the last large surge that we will encounter. I may be a little bit out on the limb, but I think most people agree this is the last serious surge. And from here on in, there will be little local increases in cases, and we will just have to have a really a thermometer diagram showing the degree of activity in your area. And depending on the form of the level of activity, uh, the you can adjust how you behave. In other words, if the activity in your area is high, then you wouldn't go to the movie theater. You wouldn't go to crowded environments. When it's low, you'd feel comfortable. If it's very high, maybe for temporarily the schools will have to use masks. Uh, and then when it lowers, they can back off the mask. But I think it's going to be a very dynamic and changing uh, approach. And no rigidity. Oh, you're changing your mind. No. We're adjusting to the conditions as they arrive. And that's the important thing. And, and one of the things that I've realized is, as an infectious disease specialist, I have had to learn flexibility in my recommendations because uh, all organisms, uh, bacteria and viruses, uh, mutate and want to escape uh, whatever the anti-infective or vaccine uh, that's directed against them. So we have to always be on the alert and we have to be willing to pivot or change depending on what variant does arrive. So I think the key, and unfortunately, this has been interpreted as, oh, well, you don't, you're, you're changing your mind. No, we're adjusting to the change in the conditions. Hey, Fred, I'm glad you brought that up because that was, um, I was about to lead into this question because the, um, I'll, I'll give you something that's more contagious than uh, Omicron and stuff, which is disinformation. And uh, so much of, I, I spend a fair amount of time just trying to go through social media and, and go to various websites to understand what people are, are thinking. And obviously, the protests up in Canada have dominated headlines. Um, you know, there are other issues here in the United States. 
But so much of this, I think, is um, critical um, about our institutions and our science as though, you know, these are static conclusions. And the point you're making about the need to pivot with change conditions and the need to pivot with the data that reflects those change conditions. That part of what, um, you know, I, you know, hopefully we'll draw some lessons out of this pandemic so we don't have to repeat the mistakes next time. But part of this, I think, is there was never really an explanation to the American people that science is, is not, you know, all-knowing and all-perfect. The benefits of science and the benefit of data is that it provides an opportunity to rethink and to pivot and to shift and to respond to what we are learning and, and the fact that what we know about something is never static. And I think that that is one of the overarching lessons that, you know, unfortunately is not appreciated. People ascribe all sorts of either ego or political, um, we'll call it objectives to the scientific community. And many of these are men and women who are working, you know, not only extraordinarily hard, but under extraordinary circumstances where decisions have to made, be made. They have to be made quickly. They have to be made balancing competing interests and, and always in the public interest. And so I'd actually like to, you know, maybe I can, I can get a little more, I'll call it commentary out of you and Bill on this, this point, because this to me is, you know, has been so fundamental um, in trying to manage the pandemic is an understanding of science and how it works and why it is not static and why, you know, part, if it's done correctly, is you're learning and you're, you're, you know, basically adjusting in response to change circumstances and data that comes out of those change circumstances. So let me just sort of sit back. I, I really would love to have your and uh, Bill's uh, thoughts around this. Uh, thank you, David. I'll get on my soapbox here. Um, this has been, I, I tell you, a lot of experts in infectious disease who have been trying to share uh, their knowledge and, and what they, their analysis have been uh, criticized and denigrated. And I ran across an explanation that I think really fits with what has been going on. And uh, it's a, it's by uh, um, some psychologists, Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, it's, a, it's, uh, it's actually been described many years ago and, uh, in psychology, and it's, it's uh, cognitive bias whereby people with limited knowledge or competence in a given intellectual or social domain greatly overestimate their own knowledge and competence in the domain relative to the objective criteria or to performance of their peers and people in general. So they feel that they have the same expertise as those who've trained for years and years and uh, really learned the craft, uh, in this case, infectious diseases. And uh, this, this problem, this Dunning-Kruger effect, is probably present in about a third of the U.S. population right now. And it has led to a high number of deaths. And I just saw uh, yesterday that the death rate 
among the, the counties with the highest, uh, uh, who supported the strongest support for Trump, the death rate is very, very significantly higher than those counties that had a low support for Trump because uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect seemed to take hold predominantly in the Republicans and uh, the politicians, the Republican politicians, who have really guided their, their supporters off a cliff and also really encouraged this uh, denigration of expertise. And it's really, it's called visceral bias. And the number of politicians have criticized Fauci and criticized uh, really all the experts uh, who are out there in the public trying to clarify the facts as they are. So I, I'll get off my soapbox and Bill, maybe you can uh, uh, correct me. <laughs> no, I, mean, I think you're right. I think, but at the same time, there have been, uh, with something so new, I think that even the experts are learning as they go. Everybody is. Um, you know, if we you take Dr. Fauci, he's clearly made statements that are that have turned out to be incorrect. And if you take the expert coming from the other side of it, as doc, Dr. Macquarie from uh, Johns Hopkins, um, you know, he's been incorrect on a few occasions too. But um, you know, so it really does when you've got a novel event as this has been. Um, every, everybody from the experts to the lay need to take everything you're seeing with a grain of salt. Um, but the one other thing that as we look at this, and I, maybe not, I don't want to say look back on it yet, but, yeah, but looking back at what we've done through all this, we've got to remember that this is not the last event that we're going to see. That through history, through most of recorded modern history even, um, we get significant epidemics, if not pandemics, every four to seven years. Um, you, can, you can count right back and you'll, and you'll see them. Um, they don't all have as much commercial impact as this has had, but it does mean that people, organizations, and governments need to take stock again of what we have done. Um, one of the things that people don't appreciate is that when we had the uh, pandemic flu fear, which never turned into happening in the 2009-2010 uh, era, there was the U.S. government developed the uh, National Response Plan, which then was modified when they realized that plans don't really work. They was modified into the National Response Framework, was, which was just a series of here are the things you should think about, here are potential ways that you could go. But that, importantly, one of the major aspects of the NRF was a plea to various infrastructure segments within society to do the same thing. And while the NRF may not have been the, the huge help, going to the various infrastructure um, segments within the United States, they did develop their own national, their own response frameworks. In many cases, you know, a lot of them had to dust them off the shelves to come out. But there were a lot of large organizations we worked with that that when I said, "Didn't you do this back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten?" They said, "Oh yeah," and they went and pulled their pl plan off the shelf. So this does something that people and organizations do need to do is 
get your lessons learned, update your plan if you had one from 2010. And if you don't have one, then have one and put it on the shelf because you're going to need it again, almost guaranteed. So Bill and Fred, let me um, sort of add to your comments a little bit because as a a former prosecutor, I still remember that one of the most effective techniques in cross-examination is to find prior inconsistent statements of a witness. And credibility gets quickly destroyed when you point out that isn't the fact that you said X on a prior occasion. And on another occasion, when you were, you know, in front of, you know, X, Y, and Z, uh, you said this. And what I find here, and I again, I you know, as, as you said, Bill, and Fred, you've said this before, this is not going to be the last one. And, you know, among the lessons here, I, I really think that there is a broad educational process that needs to take place about the benefits and the limits of science. There's a lot of great good that came out of this in terms of when you see how quickly a, an effective vaccine was created, see how it was done, how it was rolled out. Yes, mistakes were made along the way, but almost, uh, I, I would say, unprecedented in the history of medicine in terms of what has happened here. Uh, there were also you know, lessons we learned about masks, wearing, and what we're shutting down, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of lessons afterwards. But there's a fundamental lesson that I don't think we can ignore, which is that there are men and women and institutions who need, who whose opinions we want, who will give the opinions based on certain data and what they know at the time, but they must be allowed to adjust and correct, as Fred said, pivot, and they may come up with a different conclusion later on. But that is not the basis for discrediting the institution or the people. And indeed, the risk I think we run, particularly um, in an environment where so many people have a voice and social media is loud and it's easy to, relatively easy to organize sort of tribal warfare, is that um, we may very well lose. One of the casualties of this pandemic, as I talk to people, may be that some of our best people and our smartest people and our most caring people may no longer say, want to come out of the woodwork and, and share what they know and share their opinion at the risk of, you know, exposing themselves and their family to, you know, the mob. And I don't mean, you know, capital M at their doorstep, but, but there is a mob out there that is, you know, very quickly wants to seize upon experts who are doing their best with what they know on a particular time look for the opportunity to point out the changed conclusions, ascribe all sorts of personal and political agendas to what they were doing, you know, turn this into a tribal warfare. And one of the casualties may very well be that I don't need this in my life and, you know, I'm not going to do this again. And I know there have been, I'm not, you know, please don't try to ascribe my political views here, but, you know, the fact that Fauci has faced so many death threats, uh, uh, others have, uh, that to me is a important casualty to put up there around the pandemic. And it is something we have to do a better job. We have to educate people about what it means to be a scientist, to be 
in the in the practice of medicine and and giving the best advice at a particular given time while reserving the right to pivot. David, very well said. And I, I come back to thinking about the polio vaccine. And I was a very young child uh, when that came out. And Salk was a hero. Salk had walked on water. Everyone listened to what he had to say. No one would dare criticize him. And there was a respect for expertise at that time that is slowly been eroded to the detriment of our society and the detriment really of the world. So I, I don't think people understand how damaging this has really been. And I, I think history will show that somewhere around a third of the deaths in the United States could have been prevented if uh, the information everybody had believed the experts. And, and think about this vaccine, uh, which was uh, developed in, in really record time and is equally effect, efficacious, as efficacious as the polio vaccine and actually less, far less side effects than the polio vaccine. And yet people denigrated the companies that say, oh, they were just trying to make a profit, uh, denigrated the, the uh, infectious disease and infection control people who recommended it and really twisted and turned the facts around in an extremely negative and destructive fashion. And we really have to look back and we have to find, uh, figure out how we can stop this from ever happening again. I'd say amen to that, and I would um, say that there's there's plenty of responsibility on all sides of the political spectrum, and um, I still remember when the vaccines were coming out, there were certain people, prominent political figures who went on to take a different position, uh, who would not take the vaccine and, you know, claim that uh, it was not safe. And, you know, apropos, you know, one of the benefits of having both of you, I think the messenger matters so much, okay? And it cannot be one one source of information. That as we think about, you know, either you know, the need to prepare for future pandemics, but I would say other, other forms of emergencies, et cetera, that we have to do a better job in identifying, you know, the messengers in respective communities, uh, in respective, we'll call it political circles, social circles, financial circles, etc., to you know carry the message, to ask the questions that need to be asked, and then to carry the message. Then um, you know, Bill, this is really, you know, the, I think the point you were making is not just about a plan on the shelf; it, it, it's about how that plan gets implemented and acquiring the lessons from every crisis about what, what we can do better. The old saying in the military is plans are everything before battle begins and plans are worthless after the battle starts. Um, the, the one other point that I think is real important as we look back is to remember that science is not monolithic. In, in some senses, in some cases it can be. You, know, you get data that's just, it's very clear, black and white, that's the way it is. But at other times, there, there are competing views, and the, the true scientist will take the competing views and, and weigh them and provide, um, be a balanced 
scored, so to speak, opinions on these on these differing views. I think sometimes what we ran into here was that people took a view and they dug in and they were sticking with that view no matter what. And um, that was a problem. And then also, since the audience here is oftentimes organizational um, people, we've got to recognize that what is the pure public health guidance may have to be modified in an organizational setting. Um, in some cases, more stringent than than the general public health guidance is. In some cases, just different. So it is important for organizations to have um, help navigating a, a domain that is not their own knowledge domain, such as as medicine or you know, infection control, all of those things. So I want to thank you both. Um, because one of the purposes of this podcast was to find two intellectually honest brokers who could pivot, who were willing to rethink their assumptions, who were looking outside their immediate silos of information, and uh, who would be willing to share their time and their expertise. So um, again, I'm going to reiterate um, the gratitude that you got to you guys for spending the time that you have. Um, we're going to stay on a two-week schedule uh, unless something um, comes up that's particularly important. But in any event, thank you guys very, very much. Very much look forward to speaking to you in two weeks and before then, if there's something material to share with the audience. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.